Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have spoken to us through the prophets in your holy word. And we ask that you'd speak to us now through the preaching of that same word, that you'd give us ears to hear it, hearts to receive it. May we respond in faith and obedience, all for your glory, for we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Open your Bibles again to Zechariah 14, page uh, 799 on the Pew Bibles. Zechariah 14, I've read the text earlier, so I'll be referring to it as we go along and reading again sections as we go along, but I won't read the text again now. It's taken us six months and 18 sermons to work our way through the 14 chapters of the book of the prophet Zechariah. And this morning we come to the final chapter, and this is quite clearly the climax of the book. Not only is this chapter the conclusion of the book, but it also brings to a conclusion and a climax many of the earlier themes of the book. Remember that this, the first, that the first Six chapters of the book were Zechariah's night visions. They were filled with encouragements to rebuild the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. Here in this final vision, we see that in the coming day of the Lord, the entire earth is transformed to look towards the holy temple of the Lord in an exalted and transformed Jerusalem. Remember that in chapter 7 and 8, we saw the question about whether or not to continue fasting. And Zechariah's answer from the Lord was that one day those fasts would be turned to feasting. Here we see the message is that on that day, all the nations will either come to feast with the Lord, or if they do not, they will have no rain. That is, they will not eat at all. It will either be eternal feasting with the Lord or eternal fasting. And then, of course, the second half of the book, from chapter 9 onwards, has been filled with messianic prophecies of the coming Davidic shoot, the coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see that, finally, the Lord himself will come. He will be the king who will rule over all the earth. The final prophetic oracle, which began in chapter 12 and now concludes here in chapter 14, it's been all about this coming day. That day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's coming kingdom and his salvation. And it's been like a slideshow where each time the refrain on that day has repeated. And it's repeated 17 times in these three chapters. You know you are getting another glimpse, another snapshot of that coming day. In chapters 12 and 13, most of these slides were depictions of Christ's first coming. When he came not as a conquering king... But as we saw, the humble king riding on a donkey who came to be pierced that he might open a cleansing fountain. The Lord's shepherd who was struck with the sword of the Lord's justice and his sheep were scattered. But here in this final chapter, we see a series of snapshots that are focused on Christ's second coming. His coming in glory to conquer and to judge his enemies and to reign forever. As we work our way through this passage, we want to keep in mind, what does this mean for us? What does this mean in terms of application? 
the Lord gave this revelation to his people in Zechariah's day when they were oppressed and discouraged. And he gave it that they might have hope. The Lord revealed that his salvation was coming. So wait for the Lord. And though we live so many years later, our hope is still fixed on the Lord and we continue to long for his coming. And so we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Each day we live is one day nearer to that day when he will return. So this passage is here to strengthen us, to give us hope as we pray for and prepare for his return. We'll work through the passage this morning, section by section. We see first a battle and then victory at Jerusalem. Then we see the heavens and the earth transformed at the Lord's return. And we see a judgment upon the nations, followed by worship for the king. And finally, the chapter and the book closes with one final glimpse of all things made holy to the Lord. So first... Battle and then victory at Jerusalem. The chapter immediately plunges plunges us into the action as we see a fierce battle at Jerusalem. And here at the outset, let me remind you of what I said two weeks ago when we saw a similar battle at Jerusalem in chapter 12. That this is visionary material and Zechariah is using Old Testament language to describe future New Testament realities. And so when he speaks of an assault on Jerusalem, this is not describing a physical battle at a physical city of Jerusalem, but rather he's speaking about an assault against what Jerusalem represents, the New Testament church. Jerusalem is representing here the New Testament church. And so we read verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, and the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now this is a shocking description. That on the day of the Lord's deliverance, first the church must suffer so grievously at the hands of her enemies. And what is most surprising is not that the enemies of this world hate God's people. We know that. We know that well. We know that the world seeks to persecute Christ's church. But what may surprise you is the fact that the Lord not only permits the suffering of his people, but here, immediately before Christ comes, he explicitly gathers the nations for one final assault against his own people. The Lord has his purposes. As we saw last time in chapter 13, how he brings his people through the fire in order to refine them like silver, in order to test them like all. And the same is true here. We don't always understand all the Lord's purposes, but here, just as he gathers the armies of all the nations against Jerusalem, that will be their undoing. For just when it seems that they have the upper hand, the Lord himself enters the battle. Verse 3, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Whereas in previous chapters, the Lord strengthened his people and gave them the victory, here we see he himself will fight. And when the Lord enters the battle, there is no question of who the victor will be. 
even as the Lord will surely triumph, we then get another scene in verses 4 and 5 of the Lord providing a way of escape for his people. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall be moved northwards and the other half southwards, and you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. And the Mount of Olives is a long, high ridge to the east of Jerusalem. And anyone fleeing from the city would be slowed by having to hike up and over this high mountain ridge. But here we have this picture of the Lord standing on the Mount of Olives and splitting it apart to produce a valley. In other words, to produce a way of escape for his people. They, fly to a, they flee to a town called Azal to the east. And they do so with the same haste as when fleeing from an earthquake that was still remembered from the reign of King Uzziah 200 years earlier. Certainly, we know the Lord can raise and lower and split mountains. But just as I don't think he's talking about a literal assault on the literal city of Jerusalem, I don't think he's speaking of splitting this literal mountain. Although I I may be mistaken. The point here is that the Lord provides a way of escape for his people in the midst of the assaults of their enemies. When the nations attack Christ's church, he will come in battle to defend her. And on that last day, he will, metaphorically speaking, move mountains to provide a refuge for his people. And we see the final phrase in verse 10, Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Now, holy ones could be either holy angels or holy people, his saints. But this seems to line up perfectly with the words of our Lord Jesus in Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The hosts of angel armies will stream down with the Lord and no one will be able to withstand his overwhelming might. So the overall message of this first section is the sobering reality that There will be persecution of Christ's church by the ungodly nations. And then the Lord himself will come and enter into battle to deliver his people. While this splitting of the Mount of Olives may be metaphorical, in our next snapshot we see the heavens and the earth will be transformed by the Lord's coming. First we see a dramatic change in the heavens in verses 6 and 7. On that day there shall be no light cold or frost. And there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On the day of the Lord, we see an undoing of the natural, the normal operations of the created order. First, we read that there is no light, just as there was no light on the first day of creation before God said, let there be light. Then in verse 7, the phrase translated unique day, it's the same Hebrew as day 1 in Genesis 1-5. It is like the first day, but this is now the first day of a new creation. It is neither day nor night, but something altogether new. For after this period of darkness, it says that light comes at evening, the very time when you would expect the sun to set. 
the light to fail, but now a new light dawns. What is going on here? We need to read between the lines and compare Scripture with Scripture, but I believe that this is describing the beginning of a new eternal day. This is the way it's described in Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. And we have the same thing described for us in Revelation 22.5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You say that we see that while we don't know when this will happen, it says in verse 7, that day is known to the Lord. So the heavens are transformed. Then it says in verse 8, Jerusalem will become the source of living waters. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Living waters speaks of both fresh water, but particularly water that gives life, water that causes the desert to bloom. This imagery goes back to the beginning when in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden was a source of a fourfold river that watered the whole earth. Now, historically, Jerusalem was fed by a spring, but that spring dried up in the summer. It was barely enough for the city, certainly not enough to flow out in life-giving rivers. And then we have a vision of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 47, a prophecy where a future temple would become a source of living water. But that water flowed out only toward the east, only to the Dead Sea, making the foul water fresh and giving life to everything it touched. But Zechariah's vision here, though briefer, is even more abundant than Ezekiel's. For here the living water flows from the whole city, which is transformed to be a holy temple, and it flows both east and west. This is all pointing forward to the even clearer picture we get in Revelation 22.1 of the river of the water of life, which flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the new Jerusalem, which is flanked on both sides by the tree of life. Now what is this water? What is its source? This river is flowing with the waters of salvation. And we know that the source is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus likely had this verse in mind, this verse from Zechariah, when he declared in John 7.38, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He was speaking about the Holy Spirit who dwells within the hearts of believers and gives us new life within and so we see the heavens are transformed. Living waters flow out of Jerusalem, flow out of the hearts of those who believe in Jesus Christ. And we see verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. This verse is simply saying that the world, which from the time of Adam's fall has rejected the Lord as king, will finally bow down 
everyone and recognize who is King of kings and Lord of lords. From this point on, there can be no more rebellion, for his reign will be absolute. There's a reference here to the Shema, the declaration in Deuteronomy 6.4 that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so all rivals, all false gods, all other kings will at last be eliminated. Finally, the whole earth will recognize and confess with Israel that the Lord our God is the one and only God who alone reigns. We'll see in a moment what happens to those who refuse to submit to his rule. And the transformation of the earth continues in verse 10, where we see the walled city of Jerusalem is exalted and the land of Judah around it is flattened down into a plain. Now, Jerusalem was already a city on a mountain, but there were other mountains around it. This transformation of the landscape, it exaggerates things so that Jerusalem alone is lifted up while everything else is flattened down. Yes, this elevation would provide physical security, but most of all, it is a picture of nearness to the Lord as his holy and exalted temple, his exalted throne. In verse 11, And it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Here we see the Lord providing eternal security and protection for his people as he dwells in their midst. So on the day of the Lord, he comes to deliver his people. The heavens and the earth are transformed, and now he reigns in their midst in eternal blessedness. Then we turn, we see a different picture, a vision of the Lord's judgment upon the nations. Verse 12, this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage a war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Here we see the fate of all those nations that had terrorized God's people. And I believe we ought to take this description as one more way to understand what the unbeliever will suffer in hell. Perhaps you're more familiar with the description of eternal fire, which will burn and will never run out of fuel to consume. But Jesus also speaks of the worm which will not die. That is, the worm which will continue to gnaw at the flesh. But here we have another disturbing description of a plague that suddenly rots the flesh. And we'll have one more picture in the next section of drought and famine. All these Frightening pictures of God's wrath coming down upon sinners. These pictures ought to drive you to flee from the wrath of God. Flee to Christ, who is the only Savior. The plague of verse 12 then leads to the great panic of verse 13, in which the enemies begin turning against one another and destroying each other. Perhaps you've heard unbelievers joke. I know I've heard the line in movies, I'll see you in hell. And they speak as if hell will be one big party in which God-haters can enjoy one another's company. But here we have an accurate biblical description of eternal judgment in which sinners don't enjoy hell, but rather they turn against one another, they attack one another. As Thomas V. Moore writes, hell shall be hate 
in its fiercest and hatefulest forms. Sin is now the cause of all the quarrels on earth. It shall be the cause of endless quarrels in hell. This is but sin left to itself. With God's judgment falling on these nations, we then see that they are plundered in verse 14. And the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected, gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. Just as Israel had plundered Egypt in the Exodus, so now all the nations are plundered and their wealth is gathered up for God's people in Jerusalem. So we see the Lord brings his judgment upon the ungodly nations. Then we shift again abruptly to a scene of worship. Verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Here we see that what remains of the nations are transformed from rebellious enemies to becoming not only subjects of the king, but also those who bow down to worship him. As Zechariah has spoken previously in this book of the Lord bringing in the nations to become his own people. And here's another glimpse of that as they join in to worship the Lord. In particular, they come annually to the Feast of Booths. Now, of the three annual Old Testament feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Booths, this may be singled out for a few reasons. First, it was the one feast that particularly welcomed foreigners. Second, it was associated with the temple, having been celebrated at the dedication of Solomon's temple, and immediately following the restoration of worship when the altar was rebuilt in the second temple. Third, Zechariah may not have known, but we now know that Passover was fulfilled by Christ in his Passover sacrifice on the cross. Pentecost was fulfilled in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. But the feast of Booths, the third and most joyful of the feasts, points forward to heaven. In the feast of Booths, the Israelites were commanded to construct booths, which were tents to remember the Lord's provision for them during their time in the wilderness. At the same time, it was a harvest festival to celebrate the fact that they had come out of the wilderness and were now dwelling in the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But that promised land was only a foreshadowing of our eternal inheritance in the new heavens and the new earth. And so the Feast of Booths is chosen here to be a picture of a heavenly worship service in which God's people look back and praise him for prior deliverance. And that's lines up perfectly with what we see in the book of Revelation. What do, what of those who do not join in to worship the Lord? Those who do not come up to worship, who do not thank the Lord for his deliverance, who do not thank him for their bountiful harvest, they receive the curse of a lack of rain, which would devastate their crops, would cause famine and death. And so in addition to the plague we saw earlier, to them is added an eternal dryness, a never-ending hunger. In verse 18, we see Egypt is singled out perhaps because they were watered by the Nile River. And so if they do not worship, not only do they receive a lack of rain, but they receive the curse of a plague in addition to the lack of rain. Although this plague is then added to all the other nations as well. These curses are just one more picture of the judgment that comes upon the wicked. 
And so, after these droughts, famines, and plagues run their course, the only ones who would remain on the earth are those who worship the Lord. This brings us to the final glimpse that we have of that coming day of the Lord, when all will be holy to the Lord. Verse 20. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. Formerly there was only one place where these words were engraved. It was on the golden plate that rested on the forehead of the high priest. Only he was set aside as holy to such a degree. But now even the bells on the horses are holy to the Lord. And perhaps that seems a strange item to highlight. But if the animals have been set apart as holy to the Lord, that means all the people have been as well. And this is confirmed by the next thing we see. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. Here we see other items singled out, cooking pots, in order to demonstrate this point. If every pot in all of Jerusalem and Judah has become as holy as the sacrificial bowls of the altar, that means the whole realm has become as holy as the most holy places in the temple. Along with this, we see that there has been a great purification, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. There's a bit of a play on words in this verse. The Hebrew word translated traitor here is actually the word Canaanite, referring to the original ungodly people that the Lord had devoted to destruction when Israel entered the promised land. And so the Lord is saying there will be no ungodly people like that here. And yet this term had also come to refer to dishonest merchants. Now Jesus, in an initial fulfillment of this verse, had driven out the money changers from the temple in Jerusalem, saying, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade, John 2.16. The greater fulfillment will come when Christ returns. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be such a perfection of holiness, the complete absence of sin and uncleanness from the presence of the holiness of God himself to the holiness of the people of God, to down to the holiness of the most menial pots and pans and spoons and forks. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, and nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Revelation 21. This is the final outcome of the day of the Lord. The heavens and the earth are transformed. The Lord reigns over all, and his people worship him in a state of consummate holiness. This vision of what is to come was given by Zechariah to give hope and encouragement at a time when God's people were under the thumb of foreign oppression, even though they had to wait long for its fulfillment. And though we live 2,500 years later, our hope is still fixed on the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, there will be those who doubt or even mock, saying 2,500 years have passed and this has not happened? 
Will it ever happen? But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Second Peter 3.8 From the Lord's perspective, very little time has passed since he revealed these things through Zechariah. And Christ will certainly come on his appointed day. Our task is not to calculate times or seasons, but to be ready when that day comes. And no one knows the day or the hour which is known to the Lord alone. So we must be prepared. And how can we do that? Peter goes on to write, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? If the final day that we anticipate means to dwell in perfect holiness with our holy God, the best way to prepare for it is to pursue holiness today. If you don't love holiness now, how can you enjoy the new heavens and the new earth? If you don't delight in worshiping the Lord now, how will you enjoy joining in with the heavenly choirs above? In fact, holiness is absolutely required. As we read in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. While this vision of what awaits us when Christ returns reminds us of our need to be holy, to be holy as our Heavenly Father is holy, it also provides us with the greatest possible incentive to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to put off the sin that so easily ensnares us, to put on the new man in Christ Jesus, renewing our minds and our hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit. The motivation to seek holiness is our longing for that day when there will be no more battles to fight, no more enemies to oppose, no more sin to struggle against, no more tears and no more death but we will simply be with the Lord forevermore. If that is your longing, if you are longing for that day, I would encourage you to pray, Lord, make me holy. Sanctify me to be like your Son, Jesus Christ. Fill me with your Holy Spirit that he might sanctify me from within. And then you can rest secure in the hope of his promise. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful vision of what awaits us on the coming day of the Lord, the day when you will bring our salvation to completion. Even as we long for his coming and pray Christ would come soon, we also thank you for your patience, knowing that you are giving time for every one of your elect to come to repentance. Lord, as we hear this morning of the terrible judgments that await the wicked, we pray you would bring conviction upon those who are still in their sin, that they might flee to Christ for salvation. And even as we rest 
in the finished work of Christ. Help us to be steadfast when persecution comes. And we trust that you will deliver us from all our enemies. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow in holiness. And you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we wait for and long for the day of Christ's coming. Come soon, Lord Jesus, for we pray it in his holy name. Amen.